Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at The Ends Report. I'm James Ajapong Parsons. And guess what? The Eco Chamber has now shifted to a weekly format. <laughs> Which means you'll get twice the info and be the first to hear all the green goss and serious environmental policy announcements in the UK right here, right now. In this week's episode, we'll be finding out why Scotland may be heading towards a plastics disaster if its nascent deposit return scheme is stymied. We'll be discussing the importance of the government's latest set of EIA reforms for the natural environment, as well as the implications of a 1,000 plus fine issued in Wales for illegally destroying three acres of dormouse habitat. And for our deep dive this week, we're speaking with Hugo Tagholm from Oceana UK about why he's taken the government to court, the reasons why we don't want to nationalise water companies right now, and the battlefronts for water policy in the years ahead. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. To help us cut through the stinging nettles and brambles of news this week, I'm joined by the ENDS Report's own news editor, Pippa Neal, features editor, Tess Colley, and investigative journalist, Shosha Ad. First up, is the brewing discontent between Holyrood and Westminster over our love or hate for recycling our plastic bottles and drinks cans. I am, of course, talking about Scotland's yet-to-be-launched deposit return scheme, slated to be rolled out by August of this year. The plan seems simple enough. Refund any deposit to those who return plastic bottles and steel cans to collection points. So, Pippa, if I pay a little extra for my can of fizzy drink... It's going to be about 20p in Scotland. I get that 20p back when I take it to one of these collection points, right? Yeah, exactly. What's the problem with that then? So there's been some concerns over the impact that the scheme could have on small businesses. So kind of firstly, with the cost of them having the machines and they're called reverse vending machines, where you take your bottle and get your deposit back, kind of the cost of having those in in their shops, for example, and like the time it would take for them to implement this, but also concerns over potential losses in consumer consumer spend, which some say could encourage fraudulent behaviour in the in the form of so-called booze trips across the border. Um, or so I can get cheaper booze in England and go back to Scotland, travel across. Exactly. Right. Okay. And it's got quite interesting recently with um, the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon. So during the leadership race, Humza Youssef, who is now the new SNP leader, said in an interview that he will exclude small businesses from the scheme in the first year. So that's, you know, obviously that's pleased a lot of people and angered many others. However, it's not yet clear whether this will be possible because Lorna Slater, the Scottish Green Party MSP and Minister for Green Skills, said in an interview yesterday that she wouldn't confirm whether she would support these plans. And she said, you know, she would need to make sure that any changes are right and legal and and ask, for example, you know, if we pause it for small businesses, what does that mean for medium businesses? What does it mean for businesses that have signed up already? So there's still a lot of unanswered questions, but I think more's to come over the next few days and weeks. Do we know how many people have signed up to it at the moment? So I think it's about 671 producers, which um, apparently represents 95% of the total volume of items captured in the scheme. So the vast majority have already signed up. And and so deposit return schemes, they're not new, are they? This isn't something that's novel to the UK. do Do you know how many of these schemes are rolled out elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I think the numbers, there's around 50 countries that successfully operate deposit return schemes. And, you know, it's not a new idea. They've been in other countries for, you know, quite a long time now. So, yeah. So why why are politicians in Westminster so unhappy with what's going on in Scotland? 
Yeah, so that's kind of another issue altogether. But there's actually a chance that Westminster could block the Scottish scheme, um, which has quite been quite a dramatic turn of events recently. Um, but basically, this all boils down to something called the Internal Market Act, which was passed by the UK Parliament at the end of 2020, um, which funnily enough was passed without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. Um, but regardless, yeah. <laughs> so this act is intended to prevent trade barriers between UK nations by establishing the principles of mutual recognition and non-discrimination. Um, and the first of these sets out that any goods which comply with regulations permitting their sale in the part of the UK they are produced or imported into can also be sold in other parts of the UK without complying with the equivalent regulation there. Right. So basically, hang on, Scotland, you can't do this because England, Wales and Northern Ireland aren't doing it yet. Exactly. And there's been kind of some reports that Alistair Jack, the Scotland secretary, is urging cabinet colleagues to block any request for the deposit return scheme to be exempt from the Internal Markets Act. So it's all a bit of a mess and it's all kind of crazy because Scotland's deposit return scheme has been, you know, we've been talking about this for years, that the act first passed in Parliament in 2020. Um, and a recent investigation I did actually revealed that Westminster was warned of these potential trade issues back in 2021 when they did a consultation on their own English version of the scheme. So this isn't a new issue and it's kind of baffles me really why it's kind of coming to light right now. And it just, you know, it just is politics getting in the way of what should be quite a simple scheme to encourage recycling. And what, and what is that potential impact on the environment then one way or another with this DRS rollout? Well, between the original launch date, which was April 2021, and the now planned launch date, which is 16th of August 2023, according to circular economy platform Reloop, some 2.1 billion drinks containers will have already been littered, landfilled or incinerated rather than recycled. So wow. the longer we delay this, you know, the more plastic that could simply be taken and easily recycled isn't being done. So that August date's the one to look out for then? Yeah. And on to the recently launched EIA reforms, the Environmental Impact Assessment Reforms. Not a ton of media coverage on what could have enormous ramifications for the natural environment. Tess, can you just tell me what is EIA and why is the government trying to change it? So EIA, Environmental Impact Assessments, is basically a procedure used to uh, determine whether a proposed development project is likely to have a significant effect on the environment in its simplest form. Um, at the moment, all the kind of legislation that backs it up comes from uh, EU directives, which we have transposed following Brexit. The government is seeking to use its flagship levelling up and regeneration bill, uh, which you might have heard of because there's loads of stuff being brought through with it. Uh, they're using that to bring forward powers to replace uh, this EIA uh, regime, um, which they call inefficient and overcomplicated, with a whole new thing, a whole new system called environmental outcome reports, uh, or they're known as EORs or EORs, depending on the, the, the circles. So the donkeys will replace the EIAs. That's exactly what this is about. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and this is really old legislation. This is this is kind of since the 1980s, is that yeah. right? So it's derived from the EU. And okay, so EORs are the next big thing. <laughs> um, can you just tell us a little bit about what we know about EORs so far? Yeah, so we know a bit. So last week, a consultation document was published, which had a bit more information about how uh, environmental outcome reports are are meant to work. Um, 
they 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 say the government that the reforms will ensure the value and rigor of environmental assessment is retained while allowing us to push for better environmental outcomes um and that the consultation will begin an important conversation about how best to make use of those powers uh so basically the way it's going to, in theory, work is that the Secretary of State or the government will set outcomes, and these are to be seen. We don't know what they are, uh, but the legislation allows them to be decided in secondary legislation, uh, which basically is like policy and guidance, stuff that doesn't go through the Houses of houses of Parliament with MPs kind of scouring through it and going through the legislative process. Right. And is that that's a worry then? A lot of green groups are pretty worried about it because that's that's our biggest form of, in this, in the way our democracy works, that's how things get scrutinized. Um, and so if something goes through uh, policy, secondary legislation instead, uh, there's a lot more, uh, the government can change it much more often. Of course they will, they, and they have said they want to put it through consultation uh, with public consultation. And they've said that it will have parliamentary scrutiny. It hasn't said exactly how or what, what that will be. Um, and they've put a non-regression clause into the leveling up bill. So they say, look, like, Trust us. We don't want our environmental outcomes to be bad, but it's opening the door to things to standards to slip. That's the that's the fear of, of campaigners. And and there is there this this wiggle room that allows the government to do things that we might not know about until it's too late. Is that a, is that a fear from campaigners? Mm, yeah. So there, there's the way in which the leveling up bill is currently drafted. Um, these outcomes are king, uh, and in theory, a project could be consented despite conflicting with with kind of other policy or potentially damaging a protected site. If overall uh, it can be shown it would contribute to one of these nationally set environmental uh, outcomes. So the Wildlife and Countryside Link, who are you know, a kind of coalition green group, um, they've kind of put out briefings on this because they're really very worried about it. Um, and they say this clause gives the Secretary of State the power to change individual existing protections when making regulations, as long as they are satisfied that the overall level of environmental protection will not be less than before. So, oh, they so think, it's a judgment call. Exactly. It opens, they say it opens a kind of a backdoor to regression, uh, even though there is, a, you know, on the face of the bill, they, they say there will be none. That's that's the concern. Okay. So the eels, we don't know yet, but the eels could be could be worrying. Could be worrying is a good summary. So to finish our, our weekly news roundup, um, shifting from the theoretical to the the potentially theoretical destruction of nature to the actual destruction uh, of our of our land uh, in the UK, and um, we're just finishing with a story about three acres of a site which was raised and, and damaged um, for for development, and. Um, we know there were lots of protected species there. So, so with me to explain the story, I've got Shosha. Shosha, what's this about? Yes. So Nathan Lewis, um, who was a 42-year-old man from Monmouthshire in Wales, um, has to pay a £1,200 fine um, after illegally damaging and destroying in total around three acres of wildlife habitat that was known to be a significant breeding site for um Dormice and also a number of other European protected species, uh, such as bats and badgers, as well as a mix of rare plants. So this land um, was actually bought by Lewis's father-in-law um, with a plan subject to the environmental um, survey to build housing and a care home, um, which was reported by the South Wales Argos, who went to the trial. Um, and he'd been excavating this site, which is near Chepstow, which is sort of off the A48 in Monmouthshire, um, an old Ministry of Defence site. Um, he'd been excavating this site with plant machinery 
without the correct license from Natural Resources Wales or the local planning authority, which in this case is Monmouthshire County Council, I believe. He can't claim that he didn't know these animals weren't there, can he? Yes, that's quite interesting because um, according to Natural Resources Wales, he did he did know um, because he'd been given a recent and quite detailed ecological survey report um, which had this information in it, but he'd chosen to ignore this and, and go ahead without the correct permits being in place. And can you just tell us a bit more about the regulations that were breached? Yes. So he breached the um, Conservation of Habitats and Species Regulations, um, which is the 2017 legislation, uh, which was amended after Brexit. Um and this is actually a piece of retained EU legislation, hence why the area is um, EU protected species. So that's the habitats directives? Um, it's, it's actually within it, it's sort of taken parts from this habitats directive, yes. And I think that's quite contentious, um, if I'm right in saying so. So, yeah, this is one of those this laws that. Um, issues, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's contentious. If there's anything you want to say on it, please. Oh, I, I better not start. Yeah. <laughs> Reform. Um, okay, so, so, so sorry, you were saying so that it's yes. derived this habitats and species regulation that he breached. Yes, uh, yes. He's is he the only one to breach these regulations? No, there are actually two other um, cases that we have in our fines monitor. So that's sort of um, fines that we've compiled over the last thirteen years. So one was a luxury housing developer in. 2021 was prosecuted um, after clearing land with a digger and in a bonfire without having the necessary mitigation in place to protect seven nests of young dormice living in the hedgerow and shrubbery. Um, so that was Nightsgate Limited. Um, and then we've also got, perhaps even more significantly, um, the housing developer Bellway Homes was slapped with this huge um, £600,000 fine, which via lots of accounts is the biggest fine ever given out in the UK for for a wildlife crime such as this um, after they carried out demolition work at a site that was known to be inhabited by bats in Greenwich in London. So, um, Those Bell soprano pipistrel bats. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. And Bellway had to also pay costs of 30,000 and made um, a significant donation, I think um, £20,000 to the Bat Conservation Trust, so it's, it's not it's not like for like we're not comparing apples with pears here. But you've got six hundred thousand in my left hand, and you've got one thousand plus for this latest this latest offence under that the habitats regulations. Um, the, the the saddest part of this story I found was that th there was no way that any of the wildlife could have escaped. Is that right? The dormice were sleeping? God. I've, I've, I've got here PC Mark Powell, who's on succumbent to the NRW, uh, said said at the time of the court hearing that the, the case is most disturbing due to the fact that the dormice were hibernating in situ at the time and would oh, have had no. no means of escape. Oh, no. he, he then goes on to say, we welcome sentences of this magnitude, which I thought was an interesting follow-up. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the other two fines that we've listed, at least, they were quite big um, corporations that, you know, would have a turnover of perhaps millions of pounds. Mm. And it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, we don't know the exact details of the case. Sure. But um, yes, for some people, maybe a thousand pounds is quite a big fine. Um, for others, maybe not so. So I guess that's one that 
we can think about and perhaps not know the answer to. And if you'd like to hear more about any of the big green news stories we've been chatting about today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com, including uh, our incredible database on fines, civil sanctions and prosecutions that Shosha uh, is so wonderfully maintaining and looking after. So now onto our deep dive section. For this week's Eco Chamber, I had the pleasure of speaking with water campaigner extraordinaire Hugo Tagholm of Oceana UK and formerly Surface Against Sewage about a whole raft of different changes. It was a really great and frank conversation about the state of our rivers and coasts today, why he's taking the government to court over sewage discharges, and as well, uh, we spoke about the future battlefronts for water quality in this country. Take a listen. So I'm very excited to be joined by Hugo Tagholm on this week's Eco Chamber. Hugo, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. We've got a lot to cover on this week's episode. I know that you're the sort of the big wig now at Oceana UK. Um, but prior to that, if we could just talk a little bit about Surface Against Sewage and your time there sort of leading that org. It's fair to say that you sort of, you you joined or at least were involved with Surface Against Sewage way back in the 90s? Yeah, look, my journey is, was, was long with Surface Against Sewage. So um, despite being a Londoner, I'm, I'm also a surfer for my sins. Um, and uh, my first sort of interaction with SAS was back in 1991 at a surf contest down in Polzeth in Cornwall, where I met some of the founding members. It was this uh, event called Surf to Save uh, that helped support Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and uh, then very new Surfers Against Sewage. And it's there that I was sort of first inspired by their initial mission around water quality and sewage pollution. And then it was many years later after university and a big bit of my career in London um, with charities and communications companies that I um, I took the helm in 2008, just as the financial crash hit um, and sort of rebuilt the organization. It had sort of hit a rocky time. I mean, I came in with experience to rebuild the team, rebuild the campaigns, uh, refocus the sort of uh, structure of the organization and start developing things to where they are today, which I'm so delighted to see. Um, very proud of what I've left behind and very proud of what I've gone into with Oceana. So that's, that's sort of three decades worth of campaigning there. Do you think things have gotten better or worse for our coastlines over those 30 years? It's a really interesting question. Um, because I think it's often been said that the, the environment's never saved. It's always in the process of being saved. And we see this sort of undulation and fluctuation between, you know, strong um, laws and regulation um, delivering results, then a weakening of those regulations, um, allowing pollution to creep back and polluters to take hold again. Um, and we've seen that sort of journey on water quality. Um, we saw in the early 90s when SAS was born, um, you know, hugely strong environmental legislation coming in from Europe, new powers that were, were put in place to force water companies to invest in infrastructure. Um, they had to clean up their act. Some of those European directives. Those European directives that now we're at risk of losing in, in the so-called attack on nature or the attack on the ocean, as I would call it. Um, so we saw that at that time that the water industry was privatized in 1989. Um, and then quickly these laws came in. And, and it was it was those laws that really drove the transformation across the 1990s. SAS played a really big part in waving the flag, in protesting on the streets of gathering health evidence um, alongside other organizations um, who were interested in the issue. Uh, 
Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, um, other stakeholders and actors. It's always a collaborative effect, um, environmentalism. You know, it's never complete attribution. It's always about contribution, in my opinion. And so that was the, the 90s. And um, it was the thing that inspired me. Um, the gas mask wearing surfers, um, inflatable turds, um, surfboards <laughs> and wetsuits in Parliament. It was those sorts of tactics, the very direct campaigning that inspired me. Um, I was a member of Greenpeace. I was a member of Friends of the Earth. I was then a member of Surfs Against Sewage. I wore the T-shirts at university. I hung out with people who went surfing, who knew Surfers Against Sewage. Um, and it was a great inspiration. And um, <clears throat> little did I think that after university and after my early career that I'd go on to, to lead the organization. And um, it will probably be one of my you know, proudest um, um, career moves. Um, I came in and it was uh, somewhat in, in disarray. It had gone through the 1990s and that rich era of direct campaigning, um, you know, alongside others um, when this European legislation was coming in to, to help focus the public attention on the issue of sewage pollution on our coastline. Um, and it was it was a big issue. Um, you know, our, our beaches were failing frequently. Um, we were still known as the dirty man of Europe broadly in terms of water quality and other environmental issues. A title that might be coming back in well, uh, decades ahead. Well, it's a title that sort of is already coming back, I would, I would sort of um, think. And so, you know, the, it was this amazing sort of sort of first decade. And then, it, and then it needed to reinvent itself. A lot of that initial investment had been driven after privatization and by those, those laws that were put in place by, by European, you know, bureaucrats um, who needed to write the detail of, of how things would happen, the level of investment that was sort of needed that came in from water companies to, to solve the first part of the problem. And then SAS had some some great leaders, some great people in it, but it was trying to reinvent itself, trying to understand what issues were next, what was next for water quality, you know, how to scale impact and voice. Um, and I came in in 2008 and it was just a handful of people. We didn't really have any money. Um, we had a, a good sort of history, but we didn't know what the future looked like. So I was there to, to, to bring in charity experience and background, uh, new campaigning tactics and techniques to build a team. We went from four people to what is now 35 people. We went from a very small budget into, you know, you know quite a significant budget in the charity sector. Um, and we started to diversify our campaigns, still on water quality, looking at, you know, groundbreaking health research on things like antibiotic resistant bacteria. Um, we pioneered and championed real-time information on sewage spills, which is now what has exposed all of the, the water companies for the, the, the huge scale, the, the millions of hours of sewage pollution they're putting into our oceans and rivers every year. Those EDMs, those event yeah. duration monitors. Exactly. Oh, I'd love to talk to you more about that in a bit. And then we got into the other issues, you know, plastic pollution and that, that big moment in 2017 when um, you know, the Blue Planet happened, people, you know, the world awoke to plastic pollution. And um, just to tell you a little anecdote about that, I had a, had a, a, had a great um, sort of privilege of sharing a stage with James Honeybourne, one of the producers of, of the Blue Planet um, a few years ago. And, and he talked about all of these amazing behaviors that they had filmed of marine life, um, fish interactions, all of these things. 
But what stuck with me the most from that was that out of all of those, you know, hours of broadcasting that were the Blue Planet, only 14 minutes were actually dedicated to plastic pollution. And what a 14 minutes that was that changed the way people thought about plastic pollution, changed the way government started to act on it, changed certainly my schedule at the time, because suddenly we went from organizing beach cleans and organizing campaigns on plastic to being, you know, um, in endless demand with, um, you know, government departments, with with um, other stakeholders, with the research and data we were bringing together. So, you know, it was um, an amazing moment and we've made some progress, but still not enough on that. People have these, these really powerful relationships with the sea and our rivers, increasingly so. And I think for me, that's what's been the driver of it. This authentic sort of passion, this understanding of sort of granular information on the ground, where you live, what you see, how you interact with the body of water and how you can do your bit to help, whether it's picking up plastic or whether it's you know supporting a campaign through petitions and lobbying, or whether it's talking to your local MP and trying to push for you know better legislation to protect and restore the wild blue world around us. And when you're out on your board and you've got those moments to yourself, do you ever have any thoughts about this ongoing debate about water companies and privatisation versus taking them back to public ownership? Because there, there are a lot of campaigners, Vogel Sharkey, um, the Windrush Against Sewage Pollution Group, and uh, I'm not sure if you've been watching Paul Whitehouse's yeah. Our Trouble Rivers series, certainly seem to be advocating for that taking back into public ownership. Yeah. But, you know, like we've just been talking about, privatisation with these uh, water framework directors pushed change. Do you do you take a view on on the privatization debate? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one, and and, and firstly, like a massive shout out to all those people. I mean, Fergal Sharkey has been a, a huge driver for the the current debate. Um, you know, endlessly, um, you know, challenging government and industry uh, for the, the the diabolical performance. You know, over the last um, well thirty years, really. You know, because some of the pollution, and let's not forget that even with the successes of you know that early intervention in the nineteen nineties after privatization, that some of these things were were hidden upstream and happening anyway so it's just that we didn't have the data back then so whilst we we had this appearance of you know the work having been done the truth is is there were still sewer overflows all of the sewer overflows that exist today you know many existed back then and they were pumping out sewage at, at the time and so they may have been hidden better but they were there. We can't go backwards now. For me, we, we've made some leaps and bounds. Should we? Should we renationalize? I'm not sure the time's right immediately to do that. You know, the question is, how do we claw back the money that should have been spent on? the infrastructure and interventions that were needed. We've already paid for this, the infrastructure that should have been there. So should we be letting those private shareholders walk away with all of the profits they've made and then have the taxpayer pay for all of the infrastructure that has already technically been paid for by the bill payers? These are big numbers. Apparently we've got in England, English water firms since 1989 have been paying dividends of 65 billion to shareholders, yeah. whilst at the same time taking on debts of about 54 billion. Absolutely. So these are these are enormous numbers. I mean, this is massive profiteering. I mean, these this is a few people getting very very rich at the expense of the environment and at the expense of the the, the bill payer. And so my question really is: is how do we how do we um, how do we claw back some of that money? Um, can we claw back some of that money? You know, if we're renationalizing, we don't want to just burden the taxpayer um, and the bill payer with all of the infrastructure that these privatized monopolies should have 
invested um, decades ago, over the last three decades. So there's a big question there. So it's about timing. It's around the the the, the levers, um, you know, legally um, and financially that we can use to make sure this is financed in the in the right way. You know, I don't want to let just a few people escape with vast coffers of money, whilst uh, the rest of us have to fix the mistakes that they made. So there's a there's a there's still a debate around that, and some of the organisations SOS Whitstable have done brilliant petitions and campaigns to try and push that forward, um, the, the renationalisation. But I think it's a question of timing. One of the things that campaigners are really against and I think what's really kind of hit the mainstream are these CSOs, yeah. these these sort of storm overflows. And, yeah. and for those who who don't know what they are, they're in essence they're kind of a, a an emergency pressure valve that water yeah. companies are allowed to sort of uh, use and release untreated sewage to prevent, in theory, the the backlog of that sewage coming up yeah. through our toilets. And there's been a lot of work that's been done to show that they're not always doing that at those times. The government in turn is taking action. They're, they're developing a plan to deal with it. They've got this wonderful title called the Storm Overflows Discharges Reduction Plan. And I'm running out of breath even yeah. to say it. Yeah. You don't like it. And you're taking the government to court over it. Yeah, look, I'm going to court to the High Court with the Good Law Project um, and uh, the Marine Conservation Society um, and others to to challenge that plan um, and particularly the pace of that plan because the the sewage pollution crisis is now. You know, only fourteen percent of our rivers meet good ecological status. You know, despite the the improvements we've made over the last three decades, our bathing waters still languish at the bottom of the European bathing water table. Um, and then, you know, I. I surf um, regularly around, you know, Cornwall where I live. And, you know, I, you have to sort of play a game of Russian roulette often in in relatively uh, dry conditions, not much rain when um, sewer overflows will be pumping out sewage. There's times I have to steer my son Darwin away from surfing in certain places. Um, there's times you can smell the reek of sewage pollution coming out of sort of river mouths that flow into good surf spots. Um, you know, because of the data that, you know, I pioneered um, with Surfers Against Sewage um, with the Safer Seas and River Service, you know, you can you can see the map lighting up with sewage discharges. And so you're like, you know, a little bit of rain means red dots everywhere. It means you're uncertain about your sort of chances in certain places of potentially picking up, a, you know, an infection. You could get a stomach, you know, bug. You could, you know, get an eye infection, an ear infection, all of those types of things. And so it is a it's an, it's a really um, sort of sinister sort of backdrop to the passion that people have for using the ocean. And many people are swimming or surfing or doing whatever. And then what right is it of these very rich companies to continue polluting the places that people love, the places that hold communities together, the places that drive local economies and tourism, the places it should be properly protected. And they use them as a dumping ground for their waste that literally they haven't built enough infrastructure to cope with the the um, the volume of waste that they're paid already to treat. They're already paid to treat it. Uh, but the government, I mean, the government is taking action. It's saying that this new plan, it's going to have water companies improve all storm overflows, discharging that nasty stuff we're talking about into designated bathing areas. And it's going to improve 75% of those overflows into high priority nature areas by 2035. They're, they're getting on top of it. They're starting. They're starting. But it's still not not quick enough. You know, It's the time that's the problem. It's the timing. We're still seeing these companies paying huge 
dividends. We're still seeing these companies paying huge executive pay and bonuses. And this is an outrage. And it's an example of what's happening in other areas of society. This, this magnification of wealth, this diminishment of environmental and social and other standards in society. Um, and it's always the public that have to wait and see. And the timeframes are often really long. You know, the urgency is something that the campaigners are calling for. You know, where is the urgency? You know, we know that there's infrastructure to build, but it's not just infrastructure. You know, this is about, um, you know, often mismanagement. It's about the, the, the lax regulation that's been in place for a long time, the defunding of regulators, you know, insufficient resources. And the campaigners, Fergal, River Action, Surface Against Sewage, lots of others are calling for a faster pace of change. So while some of the timeframes are good, one of the big things that people are outraged by is the legality of what they're doing. Now, now, now the water companies are only meant to use storm overflows in exceptional circumstances and rain does not account for that. And so these millions of hours of sewage pollution, these hundreds of thousands of sewage pollution events that are happening in our rivers and on our coastline every single year, you know, are effectively or were effectively illegal. Now, one of the clauses in the, the 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 environment sort of act and the the regulation around this actually moved moved that term or that 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 clause from the 1991 Water Industry Act to 2050. So actually, it becomes only after that stage that um, that water companies will only be able to discharge in extreme circumstances. So we've seen a thing that basically have said you can do. We've seen a change that basically legitimizes, permits, allows, gets the water companies off the hook until 2050, after which I will have long finished my career. My son will be, um, you know, surfing other places, maybe even more polluted if we let water companies carry on, you know, at this pace. And it's, you know, it's that thing that, 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 allow, that sort of permits, whether it's directly or tacitly, permits this continuous dumping of sewage and this attitude towards our water bodies because you know a lot of the attitudes i heard over my time at ss was sort of rivers are dirty anyway they're dangerous we can't really do anything about them you know it was it was like they're they're too difficult to deal with and actually that shouldn't be our our attitude towards nature or wildlife particularly in the the twin biodiversity and nature crisis we find ourselves in and you know just to sort of you know i mean i'm sure we'll drill into that more but you know, just to look at this as a, an example of how big industry is riding roughshod over things. You know, the same is in my new my new role at Oceana. You know, with industrial fishing. You know, we've we've got hundreds of thousands of hours of you know, uh, or tens of thousands of hours of industrial fishing taking place in our marine protected areas every year. We're having fishing quotas and um, set way above scientific advice, almost 60% set above scientific advice for sustainable fish populations. You know, we're seeing licenses granted to European vessels to fish effectively within our MPAs, which we consider illegal. So this is all about big companies profiteering, coming in, you know, asset stripping nature. And that is that is not a situation that we can carry on with. We'll never restore 30% of our land and sea if we if we carry on like that. We'll never, you know, fulfill our climate commitments if we carry on like that. And so this is this is water quality, water companies, fisheries, 
big industrial fishing, you know, oil and gas in the North Sea, building potentially new oil fields, you know, in or next to marine protected areas in the North Sea, you know, flouting our own climate commitments from Paris. You know, all of this is a big, a big, um, a big bit of racketeering that puts nature, nature last and profits first. And you're, you're too passionate campaigning issues i suppose it's probably fair to say that it's been the discharges of sewage from water companies and and now we're talking about you're talking about a lot about fishing and and the legalities around that what do you think is the next battlefront when it comes to water quality in the uk well, look, I mean, there's there's a few things that we're doing at Oceana. I mean, we're, we've got sort of three campaign strands, um, you know, pushing for sustainable fisheries. You know, we need to make sure that the science is followed. We need to make sure that, you know, all commercial fish stocks, I mean, I would say populations, you know, are, are only fished within within scientific advice and guidance you know that's that's the only way forward you know or in terms of marine protected areas we want to make sure that that most damaging type of fishing is excluded from all of our you know offshore marine protected areas and then a new front is also offshore oil and gas and we're working closely with the brilliant uplift movement um tessa khan and her team on um on a new marine front we've got a report coming out um in just a couple of weeks on the threats of new offshore oil and gas and existing offshore offshore oil and gas to marine protected areas, marine ecosystems, some of that beautiful and charismatic marine life we've seen in wild isles, all of that, you know, that side of things. So we're we're building a new marine um, front on that. And there's some really big problems, not just the sort of catastrophic oil spills that we've, you know, even seen in this country, you know, up in Shetland in 1993, the Brer oil spill that, that was so so um, problematic and devastating for marine wildlife, but also for the fishing industry. So we're going to be focused on on stopping that, but also the day-to-day spills um, of oil that come out from those operations. Um, the, um, the chronic sort of um, pollution that also comes from microplastics that come out of oil oil rigs, of course, and also a lot of that oil goes into single-use plastics anyway, which squares the circle around the ocean on on pollution um, and then the chemicals that come out of it and you know even the, the oil workers are starting to say look how do we push into this um, you know just transition how do we focus on offshore marine renewables in the right way um, because you know effectively we need those workers to be brought across in that transition um, we need some of the same boats and infrastructure to build the offshore renewable energy and actually that's the only way we're going to get energy security by really investing in that um, this fallacy that by some Somehow opening up the North Sea to extract more oil is going to give us energy security, cheaper, um, cheaper household bills and everything is, is, is in vast need of being dispelled because it's not true. Um, we need to invest in the clean, green, uh, renewable future. Um, and we need to make sure that people who are working in the, the oil and gas sector don't have just the option of either a old fashioned dirty job or no job. They need to have either they make a choice around their old job or have a clean green job to go to. And that's the transition we need to help with. And the platform movement, Uplift and others are doing a great job on that. And Oceana's coming in and we're going to be adding resources over the coming months and years. In response to some of Hugo's criticisms of the water industry, ENS approached Water UK for comment. That's the trade body which represents all water and waste companies across England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. However, at the time of recording, no reply was received. And that's it for today's Eco Chamber, where we've learnt that plastic bottles and fizzy drinks cans have become a political football being kicked back and forth across the Scottish and English border. 
that to shift the environmental planning system towards an outcomes-based approach, Eeyore, you don't need to tell anyone straight away what those outcomes will be. That to kill a sleeping dormouse may cost you more in reparations than a prosecution. And that the natural environment is never saved, but in the process of being saved. Thank you, Hugo. My thanks to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley and Shosha Aidy for delving into the wonderful, if not at times frightful world of UK environmental politics and policy this week. And to Hugo Tagholm for sharing with us his thoughts and insights. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the readers of Ends Report, whose subscriptions ensure that important investigative journalism about the UK's natural environment actually gets done. We'd really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, views and opinions. And now you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on Twitter using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, see ya.